tres, cuatro. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, we revisit our genre dissection on disco, a music that's often unfairly maligned. We explore some of the origins of the sound and explain what made it such colorful and joyful music. Plus, we talk with music industry legend Seymour Stein. Stein co-founded Sire Records, a label that broke artists like Madonna, the Ramones, and Ice-T. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week we're talking about disco. Now, some people love it. Some people hate it. We happen to love it a lot, but uh, we're going to break the genre down and let you decide for yourself. But first, Greg, we have a conversation with the record industry legend, Seymour Stein. Today we're airing for the first time my 2015 conversation with Sire Records co-founder and one-time Warner Brothers Records vice president, Seymour Stein. Greg, it's been a big summer for Stein. He released his autobiography, Siren Song, in June, and he announced that he's leaving both of those labels in July. But he wants people to know he is not retiring. He wants to return to his indie roots. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who spent his entire life in the music industry. He is a true lifer. He started working for Billboard and King Records when he was a teenager, and he'd been at uh, Redbird Records when he left to start Sire with Richard Goddard in 1966. And Sire would go on to sign some of the defining artists of the last few decades in a number of genres. Yeah, he was all over New Wave, Greg. He signed the Ramones, the Pretenders, the Talking Heads. Then he made Madonna a household name. And he gave West Coast hip-hop a national platform. I talked with Stein in 2015 in front of an audience in Chicago, and we discussed his life, his career, Sire's many successes. But I started by asking him how his remarkable career actually began. I was working in the Brill Building at that time. My last job, I was working for Lieber and Stola and George Golden at Redbird Records. I had come from Billboard to King Records in Cincinnati. Richard was on the 10th floor. We were on the 9th floor. We kept meeting in the elevators of the Brill Building. He was getting a little fed up with his partners, and I was a little worried that Redbird was going to collapse, which it eventually did. And uh, we started a company. It was actually first a production company and, and then soon rolled over into a record company. The, the market was crowded with labels, at, even at that time. Uh, some huge well, more labels. More crowded then. Y- yeah. Thankfully, more crowded then with great indie labels. And well, sh- what, what made you think, hey, they need another one? What was going to separate you from the pack? Well, I just wanted a piece. I wasn't looking to put anybody out of business. I, we were just looking to do our thing, maybe do it a little differently. 
I had some ideas about putting out music from England. I mean, this was two years after the Beatles, but what people didn't realize was the early Beatle records came out on, a v on the VJ label right here in Chicago. Love Me Do and Please Please Me. Love, love me do, you know I love you. And this was the black-owned company. The V stood for Vivian Carter, the J for Jimmy Bracken. Great, great company. That and Chess and I don't want to get off the track. This is a great city, a great music city. I, I have so many great memories here. I'm you came in contact with some of the biggest figures in the music business at an early age. Um, yes. And Seymour, I have to say, one of the things I've always admired about you is people, your artists talk about you in such glowing terms. I mean, Bella Bell and Sebastian wrote a song about you, yes. which did not disparage you, which, you know, to me is like, okay, no. that's somehow this guy did things the right way. You did, uh, you know, you did remarkable work with, uh, with Sire. When you talk about indie, uh, I think the music always led you. Uh, and you were, you know, you kept this label afloat and, and did some great work for about 10 years. And then I think really hit your stride uh, during that new wave slash punk era where you and Sire were at the center of a musical revolution. There's no other way to say it. Uh, you put out the debut records by some of the most important bands of that period. Uh, you know, you're talking about uh, Ramones, Pretenders, Talking Heads. Richard Hell and the Voidoids, the Dead Boys. go back and read some of the press though of some of these early bands I mean there was a segment obviously that got it the you know some of the writers really understood that music but I don't think the mainstream industry understood the Ramones or the Talking Heads when they first came out oh, they no. go but what is this noise yeah. and you well, were coming well, out of an especially ear the Ramones they didn't understand some people just thought that you know David Byrne was a whirling dervish or something but um but they really didn't understand the Ramones at all. You know, I had two bands on my label that were managed by the same guy, and uh, he said, if you don't throw the Ramones off the label, uh, we're going to sue you to get, get out of the contract. And... Um, you know, look, I believed in them, you know. Um, I had heard about them from a lot of people, but was always away. Um, I was supposed to go see them. I, I, I got sick, and my, my wife went and instead. She came back raving about them. So I, uh, the next day, I rented, a, a, like, a, a studio, and um, I, I had them perform in about... 15, 20 minutes, they must have done 18 or 20 songs. <laughs> and, um, 
and I signed them immediately that we spent the rest of the time, you know, discussing the deal and um, or they went in the studio a couple of days a couple of days later. They, I, I really wanted them, they wanted me and, and as Osire and uh, you know, we were off. It's amazing that you saw that at that point because I think if you looked at the Ramones, and I've met them all subsequently, uh, they didn't say rock star. You know, it wasn't like Joey Ramone says, you know, I'm a rock star. It was like this is this is the ultimate outsider. I think you put them all together as a band, which was what they were. Uh, I saw it. I mean, I saw something really, really spectacular. Something coming up from the streets. You have to be open to everything. The first million-selling album and single that I had was uh, by a, a band from Holland called Focus. And, um, you know, nobody understood it. This was a guy playing, you, you, you know, a, a flute and yodeling. And uh, <laughs> it was a song called Hocus Pocus. I don't know if any of you know that song. I put out some pretty weird things. And I look, I'm not afraid to be wrong. And I'm probably wrong much more than I'm right. But you've got to take chances. Yeah, and you obviously did. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, The Pretenders. Got this in pocket. Got battle. I am going to use it. Intention. Well, the, 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 the Pretenders is a unique story. Um, our last distributor before um, we hooked up with Warners was ABC Records, and they had no labels internationally, but they had one in, 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 in the UK. The A&R guy there and I went to see Billy Idol's group, and we wanted to sign them, me for America and, and but we, we didn't, we, we didn't, they, they signed with Chrysalis. And then a, about a year and a half later, he said to me, uh, I've got this great girl singer. I said, you gotta come see her. I think you'll wanna sign her. Now the reason we're here as man and woman is to love each other, take care of each other. What's interesting to me is about this era, uh, and, and Chrissy Hine is a great example of it. Uh, I think most women were sort of viewed as eye candy. Joan Judd is, a, you know, an exception. I think, uh, and, and Chrissy Hine was definitely an exception too. Uh, you know, kind of this tough uh, woman in front of a band, leading the band, get, playing the guitar. Uh, that wasn't conventional at that point either, and you, yeah, but, and you went for it. But women don't have to be tough to be, you know, that's, 
They, they can if they want to. I mean, uh, to me, one of my heroes I would love to have worked with is Linda Ronstadt. I think she's so amazing. Men aren't the same, you know, why should women, you know, there's more women around than there are men, you know, so, uh, I mean, that's, uh, I don't uh, buy that, you know. Yeah, of course. Uh, but you saw it ahead of, ahead of the industry, that you, no, you, you I again took a chance. I saw it ahead of the industry. I just love the pretenders, that's mm -hmm. all. I mean, uh, I, I don't go, I go in with no expectations. I think that's the best way uh, to do it, you know. I want to backtrack just a little bit here because around that same time, that same era, on the origins of this term in application to music, new wave. I deserve the, the particular credit for, for using the term new wave, which was ridiculous because, you know, people were calling it punk. People who loved it were calling it punk and people who hated it were calling it a punk. Listen, the worst thing you can do is put categories around you. The, the more things you do, the more you narrow down the potential of it. There's good music and there's bad music. Forget the bad music and how good is the good music? That's what it's all about. This is Sound Opinions, and we are listening to Greg's live conversation in 2015 with music industry legend Seymour Stein, talking about those years at Sire Records. Yeah, Jim, as you had said earlier, he was instrumental in signing a wave of new wave bands in the late 70s. But a decade later, he and Sire would be at the vanguard of another major musical movement. We're talking about West Coast hip-hop. Sire signed uh, Ice-T in 1987, but as Stein told me, it nearly didn't happen. That was almost a failure of mine. I always like to think of myself as being on top of new things, but uh, I must have been asleep or too busy or too much time in the UK when rap started. When I wrote about parties, someone always died. When I tried to write happy, yo, I knew I lied. Cause I live a life of crime. Why play a blind? A simple looking anyone with two cents with no I'm When I, I said, I, I, I've been left behind. Then I realized or discovered that um, almost everything in rap had come from east of the Mississippi. So I started looking in California and I found Ice-T. And uh, he was a little suspicious. He said, you know, wh why do you want to sign me? He says, what do you know about this music? I, I said, well, you know, I just love it. He said, well, tell me. So I said, look, to me, rap is like the kind of music you have to record and get out real quick because it, it, 
It's political. It tells a story. It's like a, it's like a newspaper. I said, I'm familiar with that kind of music because one of my favorite kinds of, uh, of music is Calypso. And uh, he, he didn't know what Calypso was. And I played him Gene and Dinah by, by the Mighty Sparrow. Well, it's Jean and Dinah, Rosita and Clementina. From the corner posing, that's your life is something that's heading. He, he got up and he hugged me, you know, he said, we got a deal, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you, you know, so that's it. Well, I think people now perceive Ice-T as kind of like this mainstream figure. He plays a cop on a on TV, which is the greatest irony of all time, I think. Um, you have no idea. But I, I uh, you know, I happen to know, I met Ice-T, was one of the first stories I did when I was writing, started writing for the Tribune. And the amount of fear, and you know, he, he scared people. That music scared people. And you sort of waded in there and said, you know what, this is important music. I mean, it, to my mind, hip hop, the West Coast hip hop especially presaged everything that happened in the LA riots in 92. But what did you see in Ice-T's music that was like, this, this is something I that I need to put out? was something ex exceptional. I was uh, out in LA and nothing that I heard, nothing came even close to what Ice-T was. Race war people getting killed in the street, blood on your feet, the ends don't meet. And who they gonna blame it on me? Try the media, try the PD, try your TV, try your quest for wealth. Anybody but yourself. But once the bullets start flying, people start dying, it's all because of lying. History books to teach. I think one of the, the criticisms of the music industry is that it sort of follow the leader. A trend starts, follow the trend. Once it's a trend, it's over. I'm looking anywhere and everywhere. I don't believe in trends. And you started a lot of trends. That's the thing. Well, uh, I don't... You know, Madonna's a great example, an artist who still pays uh, respect to you. I mean, I, I deserve some credit for signing her and all, but the truth is, the best thing I did was after the second album that she made, I kind of got out of the way because she knew better than any, better than her manager, better than me. You know, she knew where she was going and what to do. And when you have somebody like that, you know, that's what you should do. The criticism of Madonna when she came out is, oh, she can't sing, she's got great producers behind her, this will never last. You saw something there. What was it that you saw? What I saw most of all, usually what I look for is songs. And she only had one song, and it was a good song. I mean, that, that, so that's not true. See, I was in the hospital, and I, I, I looked like a mess. You know, I, I, had, I was there two weeks, and I had to be there for another two weeks. I said, I don't want her to think that I'm going to croak, you know, and, and everything. <laughs> so I, I had my barber come in and cut my hair. I sent my, sent my uh, secretary home to get me, you know, I, I was wearing the pajamas with the slit up the back from the hospital. I sent home for real pajamas and a bathrobe and, and all that. And um, she could care less. 
Uh, she just wanted a deal. She just, you know, where do I sign? I mean, that's, uh, that, that's what I said, look, first of all, <laughs> you need a lawyer. She, she signed the contract pretty quickly. We were in the studio pretty quickly. And um, she put the first single out and it did quite well called Everybody. It's the same song that she played me the demo of in the hospital. Look, a Madonna doesn't come along all the time, you know. And the same could be said for people like Bruce Springsteen and, and the Beatles. They're just exceptional. Fats Domino, James Brown, um, lots of them. How has what has happened in the music industry the last 15 years with, with digital affected the role that record companies play in the way music is, is well, distributed and heard by, by people like that are in this audience? I mean, it, it has affected me. It's a lot harder now, but it, it hasn't affected me in that I have to change what I do. Uh, it was a I, I liked it a lot better the way it was, but you know, uh, even then I was pretty old and it's, it's not that easy to change, but it, it's affected the major labels considerably. How records are, uh, you know, released, promoted. I, I regret that. I mean, I, I have a record collection, you know, I mean, and I treasure it. But look, things are what they are, you know. This is an, a, a new generation. You know, look, there'll always be a music business. There was a music business before there was a recorded music business. You've got artists now, uh, I use an example, a local artist, Chance the Rapper, who um, is a huge success story, one of the biggest success stories, hasn't sold a single record. There's the argument now being made, do you even need a record company? I, I think you do, but um, if, if an artist thinks he doesn't, you, you know, there's no reason why in today's business he can't try and uh, be somewhat successful. I, I, I think that uh, the greatest of artists shouldn't do this in particular because think about all the time that they're wasting doing things that other people can do for them when they should be concentrating on what they do best. I mean, that's, that's just what I think. I mean, I, I don't dare tell anybody what to do. Mm -hmm. Is there a common thread to the artists that you signed? Is there something about... I like them all. Yeah, you like them all. You but know, was, there, I... was, there a re was there something about their personality or their music that sort of had something in common that hit you no, the right way? Not, not really, you know, and... Uh, I'm just as proud as some things that I've signed that weren't big hits. In the last days of apartheid, I heard this record called Scatterlings of Africa by a band called Jaluka, and I signed that, and it didn't sell in America, and I was very sad. It actually was a big hit in France, number one, and uh, this was a mixed racial band, you know, when these things were uh, forbidden. Oh,
They are the scatterings of Africa Each of the dead ones One of my years They run the road to Bella Where the world began there's lots of things I've done that have not been, you know, financial successes, but I'm, um, you know, I don't regret them. And that, that not only don't I regret, Treluca, uh, it's something that uh, gives me pride. I certainly have uh, no regrets. I mean, music is, big, is my life, the music, and, and I can't play an instrument, I can't, I mean, I can sing, but I, you know, I, I get booed. But I mean, I've had a, I've had a glorious, glorious life. I mean, uh, you know, no regrets. Thank you so much, Seymour Stein. Thank Pleasure. you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Now we want to get you in on the conversation. Who are some of your favorite artists to come out of the Sire Records era? Call and leave a message on our hotline with your opinions and why at 888-859-1800. When we come back, Sound Opinions explores disco. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a little bit of Stayin' Alive by the Bee Gees. This week, we revisit our genre dissection on disco, exploring its origins and how it changed over the years, ultimately culminating in huge popularity, followed by a lot of heated opposition. I think it's safe to say, Greg, that no genre in the history of modern popular music has been more maligned than disco. Absolutely right, Jim. There was an entire brigade of rock kids in the late 70s sporting t-shirts that had disco sucks on them. I mean, we all met those people. Maybe we were those people at one time. Maybe we're still those people. We're going to try to knock down some prejudices here and, and talk about disco as a great art form. If you don't know disco from the Disco Sucks era, you may know it from Saturday Night Fever, the movie that turned this underground club phenomenon into a huge mainstream hit. All of a sudden, disco started popping up in shopping malls in the middle of Montana and was a major fad for a couple of years. It's still one of the best-selling albums of all time. Yes, a, a huge hit. The movie was a huge hit. Nobody expected it to make a lot of money. It did. The soundtrack made a ton of money. The Bee Gees became superstars overnight with the soundtrack. And then the Studio 54 era, the uh, infamous nightclub in, in the middle of New York City that became a hangout for the stars. You know, people like Andy Warhol and Mick Jagger and Bianca Jagger, you know, hanging out, snorting cocaine in the back rooms and dancing to disco music under the disco lights. So people have these associations about the glamour and the glitz of that era and what it meant and perhaps the, the fact that a lot of this music felt disposable. You know, Greg, uh, we have to talk about an event that occurred in 1979 right here in Chicago that bookended the disco era, Disco Demolition Night. <laughs> yeah, Jim, who can forget uh, who, who lived through it? July 12, 1979, uh, there was a nighttime doubleheader, baseball game between the Chicago White Sox 
and the Detroit Tigers at Comiskey Park on the south side of Chicago. In between the two games, a Chicago disc jockey used these explosives to blow up disco records in the outfield <sighs> and uh, damaged the park. There was, a, there was a riot that was breaking out. You know, to say it was a dangerous situation is, uh, is seriously underestimating what went on there. Yeah, and to call it a stunt, I think, uh, uh, falls short of what we were really talking about here. They were not burning or destroying white disco records, but music by women, people of color, and uh, individuals in, in the gay community. I just think it's horribly resonant of homophobia, yeah. racism, and the sort of hatred that brings to mind uh, regimes that have burned books. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that event sadly uh, marks the end, in a way, of the mainstream popularity of disco. But the genre never died, it just reinvented itself. look at the roots of this music and it'll illustrate that there's a long rich tradition of this kind of music that was built into disco and how disco flourished to this day think about this term disco when did this come into vogue it was first used according to a number of sources in a september 1973 article in rolling stone magazine of all places by vince aletti who was yeah. one of the first writers to really chronicle this genre of music. The title of the article in, in Rolling Stone was uh, Discotheque Rock 72 Party. <laughs> and uh, it was a club and loft phenomenon at that stage. There weren't really discotheques as such. They were small kind of loft parties presided over by disc jockeys who were basically playing their record collections for people and figuring out new ways of getting people to dance, segueing tracks together, extending the tracks out, forming the basis for hip-hop music, which was going on in a parallel stream in New York City at the time where disc jockeys were playing these tracks, a lot of them so-called disco tracks, as uh, the platforms for MCs to rap over. So you had these two genres of music sort of working side-by-side in New York City in the early 70s. It was coming out of soul and funk in the 60s and 70s and developed a style of its own. You, you think about a singer like Shirley Goodman, who had a huge hit in the 50s out of New Orleans when she was known as Shirley and Lee called Let the Good Times Roll. Come on, baby, while the thrill is on. Come on, baby, let's have some fun. Come on, baby, let the good time roll. Roll all night long. Come she on, resurfaces baby, in 1974 as Shirley and Company, and has one of the first disco hits, Shame, Shame, Shame. Mm. So this music was coming out of the R&B that was occurring in the 50s in a lot of ways. I'm gonna have my say, I'm going to every discotheque, I'm gonna dance, 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 ooh, till the break of day I say, shame, 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 shame on you. What was happening and what sort of turned it into a genre were a couple of things. That steady 4-4 rock beat, that syncopated bass line that you needed to get people on the dance floor and dancing, and, uh, you know, a basic meter of about 120 beats per minute. If you had those criterion met, you were considered a disco record. It was no longer just R&B and soul or funk. It was now disco. And you can hear the transition in that Philly soul sound of the early 70s, Philadelphia soul music, as written, produced, and arranged by Leon Gamble and Kenny Huff. Gamble and Huff, uh, two of the greatest songwriters 
ever in music history, the successors to that Motown legacy of the 60s. And what they did was they, they put more bottom in the music. Yeah. Um, Motown mixed its records very high. They, they were very hot. There was a lot of high end in those Motown singles of the 60s. What Philly did was bring in a lusher orchestration and more of a bottom end on the music. And that created a platform for disco to form. You can hear it with a group like Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, one of the greatest of the Philly soul groups. Gamble and Huff writing for them. That was Teddy Pendergrass's first group as a vocalist. And they had a version of a song called Don't Leave Me This Way that served as a bridge between the Philly soul era and the disco era. Don't Leave Me This Way, as performed by Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes, was basically a soul song. Don't leave me this way, I can't survive, can't stay alive without your love. A year later, a woman by the name of Thelma Houston recording for the Motown label turned it into a disco song. you hear disco starting to become a style. Yeah. Uh, by the mid-70s, the style had been formed, but it hadn't ascended to mass popularity yet. It hadn't become a trend. Saturday Night Fever was still two years off. So you had this very exciting art form taking place and spreading out from New York and getting all over the country. Greg, as you explained earlier, you know the roots of this sound lay in the Philly soul sound. But by the mid-70s, the music was beginning to be established on its own. The scene was still very much underground, however, uh, just like another music scene that was happening on the Lower East Side of New York. The punk and the disco worlds had a lot in common. A lot of the punk musicians would later be the first to recognize that when you had bands like Blondie and the Talking Heads bringing elements of disco in. Why? Because they came from the same place. It was often a gay subculture. Fire Island, the gay community, was a huge hotbed for this. It was the music of outsiders. Right. You know, by the time you get to Saturday Night Fever, it's the music of posers and wannabes and charlatans. <laughs> you know, to have this Australian pop band, the Bee Gees, reinvent themselves as a disco band. Or, you know, Saturday Night Fever, the screenplay, was based on a famous piece of journalism that Nick Cohn had written for New York Magazine. Right. Uh, the problem with the journalism was it was all made up. Mm -hmm. None of it ever happened. That wasn't really where disco was happening. It was happening in gay clubs, and you had stars like Sylvester. That's right, Jim. He was really one of the first superstars of the gay community. And in an era where a lot of that was extremely taboo to discuss, he emanated this confidence that said, yes, I am here, I am Sylvester, I am unique, I am like nobody else. He was a child gospel star, moved to San Francisco, tried to make it as a soul singer, tried to make it as a rocker, actually made two rock albums. He didn't fit. He didn't fit. 
fit anywhere. And it wasn't only because he wore dresses and sang in such a high voice. He was just, he just didn't fit in the culture until he discovered disco and began to strike out on his own. And you know, you can hear the joy of someone who, who's been shunned by society and never really fit in anywhere, didn't really have an identity in a song like his real breakthrough hit, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. Mm-hmm. You know, what does he say again and again and again? I feel real, I feel real, I feel real. something really authentic about Sylvester was he sort of refused to be put in a box. He didn't want to be categorized. I mean, in 1986, he appeared on an episode of Joan Rivers' late night talk show, and Joan was describing him as a drag queen. I'm not a drag queen. Well, you are I'm sometimes. I know, I know. <laughs> when I was little, I used to dress up, right? Yeah, okay. And my mother said, you can't dress up, you can't dress up, you got to wear these pants and these shoes, and you have to, like, drink beer and play football. And, and I said, no, I don't. And you could tell, okay, he was like, wait a minute, I'm Sylvester, you know? Don't put me in a category. Don't give me a label. The industry was always sort of trying to label him. The record company initially told him, you got to butch it up. That was a quote. (laughs) This is a man wearing a dress, right? This towering, statuesque, beautiful woman, except that he's a man. I was like, you you can't tell Sylvester to be anybody but (laughs) Sylvester. And I think that that was an essential joy in the early disco sound. You also hear it in in Gloria Gaynor. This woman, uh, Gloria Fowles, is born in Newark, New Jersey, She doesn't really fit in anywhere. She also came from the church. It's amazing how many gospel singers became disco superstars. Mm -hmm. I Will Survive is one of those songs we've heard a quadrillion times. So much at so many weddings and in so many elevators and in so many parties. But if you look at the message of that song about a woman who's been spurned by her lover and, and possibly mistreated physically, and it's this defiant cry, I will survive. going to put me down. Mm-hmm. And that became the, the rallying cry for people who didn't fit in anywhere, who didn't have money, who didn't have privilege. Contrast that to a couple of years later when Studio 54 would not let you in the door if you didn't have the right clothing and you weren't with the right people and you weren't beautiful. Mm-hmm. That wasn't what disco was about at no. all. It was about everybody come together. Let's get sweaty. Let's dance together. Hopefully let's go home with another misfit like ourselves. The same message as punk in the early days. No doubt about it, Jim. The democracy of the dance floor, Latinos, gays, blacks, all the outcasts of society created the scene and they created their own superstars. People like Sylvester, people like Gloria Gaynor. When we come back, we talk more disco from Donna Summer to Chic. That's after a break from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week we're talking about disco. 
Now, we discussed the origins of the genre and its ability to bring people in marginalized groups together, and it also had some empowering stars like Gloria Gaynor and Sylvester, but not everybody loved it. Oh, no. The only people who were excluded were straight white men for the most part, and it was straight white men in the late 70s who came up with the Disco Sucks campaign because they were threatened by it. Look at that phrase itself. I mean, that's Mm. homophobia personified. Yeah, I mean, it, they weren't protesting a drum machine. They were protesting, I think, a, a deeper sociological issue that they had with this movement. They were protesting a culture that threatened them. And, and therefore, there was an idea that these people can't possibly make art. And yet, somebody like Donna Summer was making concept albums in the 70s. I think she was one of the true superstars of this movement who transcended disco, was making great records uh, with Giorgio Moroder, and and basically reinvented the sound. Because remember, a lot of these early disco records that we've been playing were forged with uh, live instrumentation, great studio bands, meticulous production, great attention to sonic detail. They were made the same way that Phil Spector made his wall of sound recordings. When you listen to something like Barry White's Love Unlimited Orchestra, Mm -hmm. he's got 50 pieces. Absolutely. There was a lot of love and a lot of attention and a lot of art lavished on on this so-called trend. But I think Summer hit the apex of it uh, with I Feel Love, that that 1977 single. You didn't think I was going to be able to do it, but I'm going to bring Brian Eno into this. Because the story (laughs) goes... I knew you were going to do it. The story goes that in, in the middle of the night, he was making a record with David Bowie in Berlin. And Eno came running into the studio and said to Bowie, I have just heard the sound of the future. And the record he put on was I Feel Love by Donna Summer. Now, you know, Summer, again, had come from gospel found her way over to Europe where she was touring with a version of the uh, hippie musical Hair mm. <laughs> you know? and links up with this producer and songwriter Giorgio Moroda. He was actually part of a team with a guy named Peter Bellote and they crafted this kind of lighthearted electronic backing track as a demo in 74. That was Love to Love You Baby which really became the prototype of I Feel Love. It was the first time you had a backing track entirely constructed of electronic instruments. It was all synthesizer, it was all drum machines, just hadn't been done before, paired with this incredible African-American gospel-trained voice. The story goes that Love to Love You Baby, Summer actually just uh, improvised the lyrics in the studio while lying on her back, you know, Mm. staring up at the microphone. With I Feel Love, they kicked it into even higher gear. A German band named Kraftwerk had begun to make all electronic records in the rock realm. What Moroda did was pair it with that four on the floor rhythm you were talking about as essential to disco and turn the former LaDonna Gaines loose. Donna Summer just, uh, you know, this is a song about making love to a machine. You listen to I Feel Love and all electronic dance music of the last 40 years comes from this track. So here it is, I Feel Love by Donna Summer, 1977 on Sound of Peace.
I Feel Love from Donna Summer on Sound Opinions. People forget, Jim, that that track uh, was part of a concept album. I mean, everybody talks about these singles artists in disco. Okay, what about the albums they made? I mean, that was a really ambitious 1977 concept album called I Remember Yesterday, Mm -hmm. and that was the future portion of the record. And it really was the future. As your friend Brian Eno said, you know, I've just heard the future. (laughs) Well, you know, and it's also very psychedelic. That song changes when you just listened on your radio. Maybe you were driving in the car, you're listening at home in the kitchen. But when you hear it in the disco setting and it's incredibly loud, it is it is a mind-altering experience. It yeah. is a drug. No, it, it is truly a fascinating track. And the thing is, you can put it on today and it still sounds fresh and still sounds like the future. The other great auteurs of the disco era, besides Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder, I think, were Bernard Edwards and Nile Rodgers, collectively known as Chic. Talk about your great disco groups. This was truly a band. Edwards and Rodgers came out of the band concept. They had started a rock band in Manhattan in the early 70s and got really dastardly looks like, you know, black guys can't play in a rock band. They forged ahead into the disco era and created this concept of, you know, we're going to be a band, we're going to play out live, we're going to play disco music, but it, it doesn't really matter what we're playing because it's just good music. It defies genre classification. And I think they realized all of those ambitions with Good Times, their track from 1979. To my mind, it is the track that ends the disco era in a lot of ways and also opens up the future for disco to flourish in all these other art forms. You talk about your Eno-esque minimalism at its finest. You know, there's, there's just this drizzle of keyboards in it, these really taut string arrangements, you know, very clipped, fitting in with that rhythm guitar that Nile Rodgers is playing. And above all, Bernard Edwards' bass line to end all disco bass yeah, lines, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. This bass line has been sampled countless, countless times. It is one of the classic bass lines in all of popular music from the last 50 years. And people often do not pay attention to uh, disco lyrics. It's a mistake, I think, when you talk about certain tracks like the Sylvester track or the Gloria Gaynor sure. track that you'd played earlier. And I think a good example is Good Times. A lot of people are saying, oh, they're, they're singing these kind of frivolous, happy lyrics. Well, disco was about uplift and happiness. But consider the time that this was coming out. America was going through a pretty serious recession. The economics of the inner city were particularly bad. Well, New York City was about to go bankrupt. The famous headline in the New York Daily News, Ford to City, drop dead. Mm -hmm. The city of New York wanted a bailout. So to listen to this track and say, oh, happy times are here again, happy days are here again. Well, in fact, that's exactly what they were referencing. They were drawing on some of these Depression-era songs like Happy Days Are Here Again. So they were directly referencing tough economic times and the kind of music that people listen to when they were at their lowest ebb. What did they need at this particular moment? So Rogers and Edwards understood that impulse, filtered it into this song, a brilliant dance song. The three-minute disco break in the middle of the song, this is about an eight-minute track, I think is one of the most innovative pieces of music that came out of that disco era. Here it is, Sheik's Good Times on Sound of
That's Good Times by the Mighty Sheik. Absolutely correct, Greg. That, that is a great, great band. They deserve to be hailed as important artists. No doubt about it, Jim. Edwards and Rogers were hailed as geniuses. They were adapted by a number of rock bands, uh, for better or worse. And some of them, you know, worked out really well. They, you know, they worked on David Bowie's Let's Dance, Madonna's Like a Virgin, Duran Duran's Notorious, NXS's Original Sin. These are tracks that took the disco sound into the 80s and sort of reconfigured it into rock music. But you also consider this song in particular, Good Times, was the launching pad for hip-hop. Uh, Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight mm-hmm. was based on this bass line. See, I am Wonder Mike and I like to say hello. Curtis Blow's The Breaks was based on this song. Blondie's Rapture, one of the big new wave hits, was based on this bass line. Queen's Another One Bites the Dust was based on this bass line. You could go on and on and on about how this song has continued to live on. So disco, although the genre itself may be dead, the idea of dance music and this sound that we talked about in Donna Summer's I Feel Love and Sheik's Good Times continues to influence the popular music of today. That wraps up our conversation about disco. And now we want to hear from you. What was your favorite song to hit the dance floor to back in the day? Call us and leave a message with your favorite disco music and why at 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we've got an in-depth interview and performance from Dessa. You can find all of the episodes of Sound Opinions at soundopinions.org or subscribe to our podcast wherever you get such things. As always, Sound Opinions was produced this week with lots of leisure suits by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, Ayanna Contreras, Andrew Gill, and our intern, Hannah Edgar. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Steve from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, just finished your uh, buried treasure and uh, Fat Fangs episode, and specifically, I have a buried treasure that I think has a lot of crossover. There's a band, Salem Wolves. They're from Salem, Massachusetts, I think. Uh, they just put out a new album called Shake, uh, very much in that sort of Rocky Erickson, uh, Fat Fangs kind of vibe. Uh, they're one of my favorite local bands, and I love the new record. Uh, Hope you guys are into it, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks.
Hi, this is Dave from Lincoln Square in Chicago. I'm calling having just listened to your episode 666 with Mastodon's Ron Baylor and Songs About the Devil. Great episode. I uh, wanted to drop a couple other suggestions on you guys that came to mind. The first is I Am, eerie little psych rock nugget from Rokey Erickson. Another is The Devil Wears a Suit and Tie, uh, one from an upcoming Canadian country artist named Coulter Wall. Well, Reverend, Reverend, please come quick. Cause I got something to admit. Looks like I'm back. I met a man out in the sticks. Hi, this is Nick from Springfield, and on my heavy rotation list is Fantastic Furniture, P-H and F-E-R-N. It is uh, something that uh, I cannot stop listening to. I think you guys should give it a try. Hi, my name is Jeremy in Minnesota, and I'm calling about a band that's been around for about a year or so, maybe a year and a half, called The Bad Man. local Minneapolis band. It's kind of a cross between punk and ska and rock and it's it's just rowdy, like raucous, feel-good, really cool short song. Really, really worth checking them out. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.